0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. It is good to be with you all. Um, I've said a few different times it feels a bit like um, part of the extended family here, just having a, a bit of a reunion. Um, so it is is—it's fun to actually be with the community in person. And uh, as Amy said, Jer Swigert, who's a congregant here, uh, is my colleague. And uh, he, like your pastor Peter, on sabbatical. So I guess the rest of us are just trying to hold it down while they're gone. Way to go, Kip and Amy. Um, and uh, this has been, for us as a fam, like Amy said, we have four... Kids and then my brother and sister in law came with their kids. So we're having plenty of time to float on your rivers and lakes. We're grateful for your uh, generosity of sharing. Come to find out you're not short on them coming from San Diego. uh, This feels like a wilderness wonderland to us from the desert. Um, As was said, I'm the co founding director of Global Immersion and um, I'm also a PhD candidate in Christian social ethics. My focus is in political ethics. Uh, which is what we'll focus on tonight, in tonight's session. So uh, basically looking at how evangelicals engaged in politics in the past century or so, and what's a better way to do it for the sake of those on the margins. So it'll be a lighthearted conversation. I'm sure it'll be seamless. We'll figure it out tonight. Um, Don't bring any, like, boxing gloves or anything. We'll try to keep it nice. Today we're going to be invited to consider... The words of Jesus, as are written by Saint Luke, who wrote the Gospel according to Luke and also the Acts of the Apostles. And Luke's Gospel is one uh, that's interesting, and in that it's it's filled with. Whereas, like Mark is basically giving a, a bit of an outline of Jesus' life and ministry, pretty direct. Luke spends a lot of time weaving in Jesus' ethical teachings uh, and his way of life. And something that's very clear that Luke is trying to amplify is that Jesus had no problem calling out the hypocrisy of the religious and political elite. Uh, over and over, Jesus is being like al- almost overly firm with them. There's times I'm reading, I'm like, okay, take it easy there, Jesus. That's a little, uh, little harsh. The passage before the one we're going to read today, Jesus is talking about like walking over unnamed graves as representatives of Pharisees who disobeyed God. And you're like, okay, wow, all right, that's pretty firm. But but Luke is adamant about saying the way of Jesus and the kingdom he brought about uh, requires that we name hypocrisy where we see it, missing the point where we see it, an unjust power that compromises the flourishing of those on the margins. Today's passage are words directly to Jesus' disciples, to his servants, to those that have said yes to this way, to this rabbi who's bringing about a message in a kingdom that was a bit unexpected for this first century context they expected to have a king a messiah who would come and put things back together and that looked very tangible for them of retaking the land and rebuilding a temple and the, and reassembling a, a line of power that puts them on the throne and Jesus is saying he is the embodiment of this new kingdom but it's happening in a bit of a precarious way so the disciples are struggling to figure out how this kingdom is actually the kingdom they were waiting for so it's in this space that we we um we, we know that Luke is, is pointing us towards the characteristics and the way of life of a whole different social reality. The, so, the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, of those, Luke pays a special at- attention to confronting the broken religious systems, and he, he does a lot of work to place those on the outside of the Jewish bloodline inside the family of God in Jesus. In other words, Luke is saying, hey, we thought this was just a message for us, but this is actually a message for everyone. And I will do anything to communicate that Jesus is someone who's inviting everyone into the story of God through Jesus. This passage specifically uh, comes in a stream of teachings where Jesus is, is giving lots of attention to how we spend our time, our energy, and our resources with a special focus on greed and worry, and what it means to be generous, to be fully present to each moment, to not to miss out on it because of all the energy we give, to making uh, to making ourselves feel secure through wealth and power. So this passage invites us to choose presence over worry, to be awake to the divine and the unexpected, and to reframe our understanding of power and hierarchy. Okay, ready to jump in? I got to hear something. Okay, (laughs) now we're cooking. All right, we're going to go back to the passage, uh, verses 32 to 34. Jesus says, Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights in giving you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. Make for yourselves wallets that don't wear out, a treasure in heaven that never runs out. No thief comes near there, and no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be too. Okay. Pretty straightforward. Don't worry. Give away everything. It's pretty simple. I think we got that pretty dialed in. Uh, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights in giving you the kingdom. Um, I was telling Kit Between Services that uh, this passage, I, <laughs> I'm coming not as an expert in this, but more as a... Um, Opportunity to create extended confession, because it feels so uh, it's confronting me uh, in so many of the challenges and anxieties of this moment. i don 't know how many of you are feeling some of the tensions around the economy right now, interest rates and inflation and stock markets that are funky. Um, I know for our family we 've been in this space for about a year and a half where it 's become very clear. Uh, that we need to change our living situation. We're in this tiny space with no backyard or driveway and there's six of us and like the the temperature of the family seems to constantly be increasing. So we've been looking for a better fit in our neighborhood, uh, which is important to us to stay right where we are with our church that all lives in the same space and the reality of the border, we, we, we feel like our best ministry is there. Yet, as I was reflecting on this and I was thinking about Uh, a passage that's saying don't worry Jesus wants to give you the kingdom how much time have I spent on Redfin and Zillow in the last year and a half? How much more time have I spent on that than being present to my kids? Or being present to the needs of my neighbors? Or in prayer and reflection? Or enjoying the goodness of creation around me. Jesus isn't saying, don't be afraid because your father delights in giving you financial wealth and long-term security. That's not the message that Jesus is talking about as a reality of this kingdom. He's saying, I will give you the kingdom. So it doesn't dismiss the struggles and the needs we have, but a lot of times we can read ourselves into the text in such a way that we think, well, if we just tend to our worries, God's going to still give us everything and the balance sheets work out. It doesn't seem to be central to Jesus' teaching. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is a place where justice will reign, it will be had, where wrongs will be made right. All will have enough. Each one of us will know that we are enough, just as we are. We are loved as God's beloved children. The kingdom is a place where restoration and healing will be normal. It'll be a reality we can celebrate and experience every day. So we don't have to be afraid of all of this stuff, but we also can't expect it all to work out on the balance sheet. That's not the economy of God's kingdom. Now, I and we are considered to, invited to consider how much of our energy and our experience is, shaped, is shaping the way that I read this text. As soon as I was beginning to engage this text in this way, very personally convicting, but also I'm interpreting it largely through the lens of one who has a significant amount of wealth and power relative to our entire society. I'm someone who can ask questions about stock market and interest rates because I inherited a certain level of privilege with with where I was born and what I was given. Earlier in Luke 12, just before this passage, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who spent all of his energy storing up stuff, He spent all, get all their wealth into barns. The barns weren't big enough, so let's get a bigger barn. As the story goes, the dude dies. None of it mattered. Jesus called this guy a fool. He spent his entire life not only accumulating, but then creating more space to house the stuff he had accumulated. None of it mattered. So sometimes we need to to look beyond the narrative we carry to the text and see how do we interpret this through the lens of someone that might not be in my societal position of power and wealth. Miguel de la Torre wrote a book called Reading the Bible from the Margins. And he gives a commentary on this passage about the rich fool. Those who live on the margins of society instead agree with Jesus' pronouncement that this rich person is a fool. There exists a realization that those who hoard their profits usually, usually believe they have earned their wealth and thus are entitled to their riches and beholden to no one. is that an interesting narrative that seems pretty common? This is what makes them fools. Missing from this analysis, however, is how societal privilege opens doors to one ethnic group at the expense of other groups. Some of us, have a privilege which I think can be defined most simply as the ability to walk away. Some of us have a blue passport or have enough financial wealth where we don't have to be overly concerned about next month's bills. We have the ability to kind of disassociate ourselves from some of the, the, the broken systems that are breaking so many of our neighbors. Jesus is inviting us to say we have to associate with that community if we spend all our time just thinking about how we store our stuff up, you're missing the point. It's foolish. That's what he's communicating to us. For me, I had to to pause and say, okay, how do we rewind this? And as I think of this text and I think of it only in this plane, how might I look at someone in my neighborhood and compare their experience of this passage with my own? Which led me to our friend and neighbor Alma. Alma lives a few blocks from us, She's undocumented. She has five kids. Her husband is also undocumented, works multiple jobs to make ends meet. She's dear friends to our family. Our twins, our youngest two, see Alma as a second mom. They run to her because she's been so supportive of our family through some of the the heaviest lifting of having four little kids, four years and under at one point. And each morning we see her at school drop-off. Her kids go to the same school as our kids in the neighborhood. And each morning she gives us a hug and has a bit of a, a, she always has this sense of joy and levity about her, which everything about her social circumstance should not reflect that. And she told us a couple months ago, as we're in the midst of trying to find a place that fits our family and like rents are going like this and mortgages are going crazy. And she comes and says, our uh, landlord has decided to sell, so now we have to move. And they've had a, a sustainable rent. We know for her to find another place in the neighborhood, it's going to double or triple probably what she's been at. Yet, she would smile to us and say, it'll be okay. And in the midst of that, she never missed a birthday present to our kids, a moment to celebrate the relationships closest to her. And it, and it made me think, here is someone who's taking Jesus seriously, such that is not worried about the stuff that moths and rust will destroy. Her circumstances don't compromise her generosity in the midst of a seemingly impossible financial situation. And if, if, as I'm reflecting on this, I realize that Alma's story is actually closer to the reality of Jesus and his disciples in that first century than is my own. So if I want to understand who Jesus is speaking to and how we follow into, who and how we follow towards the reality of this kingdom, we look to people like Alma who remind us this is where we place our hope. This is what keeps us present to this moment. How does my reading of this text from the perspective of the margins inform my context and right size my worry and anxiety? For me, it was very convicting, honestly. As I began to think of the two, it doesn't again dismiss our concerns, but it right-sizes them such that we can place our hope and our presence in the reality of God who's continually providing. What economy have I allowed to take precedent in my life? How might my generosity, this is another interesting question, how might my generosity directly reduce the anxiety of people like Alma? In this passage, Jesus is talking to his servants. Might it be that those of us, like myself and many of us here, are actually called to be some of the answers to the prayers of those on the margins? Those that are feeling the weight and the anxiety of this moment. How might my generosity not dry up in the moments that they need it most? St. Francis says, Remember that when you leave this earth, you can take with you nothing that you've received, only what you have given So what's our practice of being here? Here's a question. Over the course of my day, how much time and energy do I spend preparing for my uncertainties of the future versus simply being present to the moment and living generously? How much time do I give to that uncertain future versus this very real present? I love this quote from the 14th century Persian poet and mystic Hafez. He says, now that all your worry has proven such an unlucrative business, Why not find a better job? It's not a great job spending all our time worrying about what's coming next. Maybe we just need to make a choice to find a better job. So our breath prayer, our practice, is don't worry, be here. Maybe even on the inhale. Don't worry, exhale, be here. The second point I want to bring from this passage is to be awake to the divine in everyday life. Verses 35 through 40, we'll go back to here. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps lit. Be like people waiting for their master to come home from a wedding celebration who can immediately open the door for him when he arrives and knocks on the door. Happy are those servants whom the master master finds waiting up when he arrives. I assure you that when he arrives, he will dress himself to serve Seat them at the table as honored guests and wait on them. Happy are those whom he finds alert, even if he comes at midnight or just before dawn. But know this, if the homeowner had known what the time the thief was coming, he wouldn't have allowed his home to be broken into. You also must be ready because the human one is coming at a time when you don't expect him. So for many people, especially religious folks in Jesus' day, they were convinced that God's final judgment or restoration, or God's final return was imminent. Like, it could happen any moment. And it's safe to say that that could actually have some good elements and also some very problematic ones in in, in such a way as they understood that this day, this moment might be our last. I'm not going to miss it. I'm going to be prepared for that day when God finally returns and restores all that's broken. On the other hand, they could get swept away in projecting this uncertain future. They could be living towards something that they couldn't put a timetable on that, that pulls them from the moment and they begin to miss out for what, from what's right in front of them. So this passage is saying, quit trying to figure things out and simply live faithfully. I love the, uh, it, the interpretation of Mark one fourteen. Mark uh, 1 is when Jesus is at the shores of the Galilee and he's inviting people to this reality of the kingdom of God being at hand. Some translations say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from one way of living and enter into a new way. Another translation simply says to wake up, wake up and embrace the kingdom here. That repentance is really about moving from a a, a numb, sleepful existence to one that is fully awake to the beauty and the color of God in our midst. We don't need to spend our time preparing for an unknown divine intervention in our future, but waking up to the divine now. It's choosing to reject that numbing out of to-do lists and interest rates and cultural expectations and job performances and perfect parenting. There's all these things we can layer on top of us that gets on our shoulders and we can't be fully present to the goodness of now. We miss out, we're asleep to the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim. Again, as I, as I talk about this, and as I read out on this, it's, it's a confessional posture I take because I realize how often I can be asleep and miss out on God here. What's the stuff that gets in the way of my ability to wake up? And I'm sure, like for many of you, uh, the people in my life that keep me most awake, that remind me of the goodness and the beauty, are my kiddos. Uh, I think of our youngest, Hank, who's a, a twin, but he's nine minutes younger than his sister, so he's constantly reminded that he's the youngest. And this dude is not afraid to move really slow. I mean, we'll walk on the beach, And we're all moving at a pace of family of six. got to stay together. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Hank is 50 yards deep. He's 100 yards back now because he doesn't want to miss out on this shell. This shell is unbelievable. Or like this fish died and its eyes are falling out. You can't miss that. (laughs) Hank is awake to the beauty of the present moment and he's not going to miss it, even if his sisters or his parents are yelling at him to catch up. I think of Rosie who's our middle child. And again, I think largely because we live in such a small space, when she sees grass, she like just jumps out and does every kind of gymnastics move imaginable. Last year, I had a sabbatical and we were able to go to France and we're up on this mountainside in this grass meadow and she is just doing flips and gymnastics over and over and we're just watching in delight. She's reminding us to wake up. Don't miss it. This is it. Let's play. Let's experience joy. Let's be present to the divine now. Think of my oldest, Ruby, who has uh, been been catching the disease known as the stoke. She's been surfing with me the last couple years. And I can hear her now catch waves. And while she's riding it and I'm still up in the lineup, she's like hollering a scream of joy. And she paddles back out and her eyes are lit. She's awake. And her being awake wakes me up. Like oh oh like I I can be so numb, but I need someone to like pinch me out of it and wake up. This is this is the life we've been given to live. The kingdom is now. The divine is here. Wake up. We've been traveling a bunch the last few weeks, and there was a moment where my wife my wife and I have packed and repacked mainly my wife Jan, (laughs) our family of six like seventeen hundred times I think in the last three weeks. And a family of six being packed and repacked is a nightmare. You should never try it. And we were leaving a hotel and we're like angry and sweaty and like, why aren't the kids coming? And I went back in to find Lou because she wasn't coming. And what was she doing? She was writing a note to the cleaners saying, thank you for cleaning our room. We love the animals because they tied the towels like little animals. She was waking me up. I was missing it. I was asleep. She wakes us up. This is the moment. This is what beauty looks like. This passage is Jesus pleading with us to be awake. When I show up, don't be tending to all these other things. Don't miss out when I show up unexpected. Be here. Be present. So our breath prayer is, be awake to the divine. Today. Be awake to the divine today. The final point, and this is a bit of a curveball in this passage, that it seems like Jesus is telling us something about hierarchy, about power, about authority, about control. Verse 37 Happy are those servants whom the master finds waiting up when he arrives. I assure you that when he arrives, he will dress himself to serve, seat them at the table as honored guests, and wait on them. That's a bit provocative. It would have been unthinkable in the Middle Eastern culture of this first century to think of a patriarch, or a chief, or a leader, or a master who's going to come home from wherever they were traveling or whatever work they've been doing, see the servants and be like, awesome, awesome, Take a seat. I got you. We know that this is true of Jesus because a few chapters later, right, we learn of Jesus washing the feet of his servants as one of his final acts, as reflective of the kingdom he's about to fully bring about through his death and resurrection. There's something about this leader, this king, that's upset, upsetting the status quo of hier- our hierarchy in that day and in ours. And how how often do we hear these passages where it's like, be careful, be awake? You never know when God's coming back. And our general perception is, "Ah, God might get us. It's like this angry God is coming to finally sweep us away. At least in this passage, in this parable, Jesus is saying, He'll return. Jesus will return. And what's He going to do? He's going to step off the throne, put on an apron, say, How can I take care of you? We don't have to tremble in fear of an angry God. We simply are invited to be embraced by an ever-loving, gracious, and expansive God. How might our faithfulness, we're being invited to be faithful with these resources, to be present to the now. How might our faithfulness be informed not by fear of an angry God, but by joy of being part of a kingdom it's inviting us to be here. How might our use of power, those of us in our workplace or in our families, how might our use of power be reoriented by Jesus' example in this parable? What's that going to look like even this week at work and at home? In, in light of what we are often given in our culture, there is, a, there is a shaking up of a status quo here that Jesus is inviting us into with how we associate to resources, to power, to how we perceive a God from being angry to being love, loving and expansive—that's very, very salty. If Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Living this way is a very salty, even prophetic witness to a world who's desperately seeking to find hope, to find the, the ability to be fully here in a world of so much anxiety and uncertainty. So may our breath prayer be, may I seek to serve rather than to be served. And with that, let's let's go back through these three prayers that we learned throughout this parable. And would you stand with me? Because I'm going to end with a a benediction. I'm going to read the prayer and then just repeat it after me as we go. So friends, don't worry, be here. Be awake to the divine today. May I seek to serve rather than to be served. And for this community, may we be a people who don't numb out to the goodness of God. May we be a people who are awake to the divine in our midst. May we be generous with our wallets our time, and our attention. May we model an upside-down picture of power that looks more like putting on an apron than sitting on a throne. And may we not only experience Jesus, but give witness to him in our homes, on our streets, and in our world. Amen.